We'll be singing t this afternoon at 4.30 in our big uh, Church at the Heart of the City event in the Life Center. Uh, Dennis Madsen from the uh, City Planning Department will be here. Uh, Tanita Phipps, head of the Department of Human Resources or Social Services, will be here. Ken will be singing. And we're going to dream together about what it might mean to be church at the heart of uh, such a wonderful city. If you have your Bibles, please find uh, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 5. And, and not yet, but in a few minutes, we're going to read from um, verse, beginning at verse 22 of Exodus 5. Many of you, because so many of you in the room are uh, leaders, have read Jim Collins' wonderful book titled Good to Great. In that book, he has an interview with Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton, that infamous uh, prisoner of war camp during uh, the Vietnam War. They walked together, and as they walked, uh, Admiral Stockdale had a noticeable limp as a result of the torture that he'd, he'd experienced in that POW camp. Jim Collins asked Admiral Stockdale an unusual question. He asked him, who didn't make it out? Who didn't make it out of the POW camp? And Admiral Stockdale answered, well, that's easy the optimists. Well, that seemed like an unusual answer, and so Jim Collins uh, dug deeper. And Stockdale said it was the optimists who didn't make it because they were always so sure that we were just on the verge of getting out. He said they would, they would say, I know we're going to be released by Christmas, and then Christmas would come and go, and then they'd say, well, we'll be out by Easter, and then Easter would come and go, and then it would be Thanksgiving, and then Christmas again. And he said, uh, the optimists died of broken hearts. And let's be clear, they didn't, they didn't die because of hope. They died because of unrealistic expectations. We're talking about disappointment these weeks. This is the third of, fourth of four weeks. And we've talked about disappointment with other people and disappointment with ourselves. Today we, have, we talk about the most difficult disappointment to talk about, and that's disappointment with God. But we have to be candid and we have to admit that some of us have experienced a disappointment with God when our experience of God uh, does not rise to the level of our expectations of God. And, and that's the, the classic definition of disappointment, when our experience falls short of, does not rise to the level of our expectations. It's common. We do our best we pray, and our parents still split up, or a relationship goes south, or our church disappoints us, or we lose our job, or something, someone dear to us, or we pray for something to happen that doesn't happen, and we're disappointed because God doesn't do, he doesn't, our experience does not rise to our level of expectation. Disappointment with God is not new. In fact, the Bible does not gloss, gloss over disappointment with God. From Gideon to Job, 
from Psalms to Ecclesiastes, from Isaiah who cried, God, it feels like you're hiding yourself from me, to Jesus himself who cried from the cross to the Father, why have you forsaken me? The Bible does not gloss over this common human experience, uh, this faith, common faith experience of being disappointed with, with God. <clears throat> so some of us have become disillusioned disillusioned with God. But uh, it has been noted that to become disillusioned is not a bad thing because an illusion is a, is a bad expectation. It is an erroneous expectation. So to become disillusioned would mean to have realistic expectations of God. Mature faith has realistic expectations. What, what might that look like? Well, think about it like this. Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, came upon a widow whose son was so ill that verse 17 of 1 Kings 17, 17 says, and he stopped breathing. He died. And Elijah stretched his body, Elijah's body, own body, out over the body, lifeless body of that little boy. And Elijah prayed, and the, the lifeless body of that little boy sprang back to life. On the other hand, David for seven days and nights, fasted and prayed and pleaded with God for the life of his own child who had not died but was very ill. He pleaded for his life, and yet his son died. On the one hand, there's Peter who had preached Jesus in the marketplace, and the night before his trial, an angel showed up in the prison cell and uh, escorted the, the chains fell off and escorted, the angel escorted Peter uh, unscathed out of the prison cell. On the other hand, five chapters earlier, Stephen, a man the Bible describes as full of the Holy Spirit, preached Jesus in the marketplace and was stoned to death. On the one hand, Paul on the island of Malta was bitten by a venomous snake and God protected him so that he didn't even get sick. On the other hand, Paul later prayed more than once that this thorn in the flesh, probably, I think, an eye problem, whatever it was, he prayed it would be relieved, and, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. See, that's realistic. When we understand that God can and often does do the supernatural, we call them miracles, but not always. So the can and does, but not always, but that's a realistic, mature expectation. Let's look at our Bible text again. Let's, or now, let's look, look at the story. Let me read beginning at verse 22 of Exodus 5. We've been looking at Moses, by the way, let me set the context for this one. We've been looking at Moses. We talked about how he was so disappointed with the people that he threw down the very tablets on which were inscribed by the hand of God, the Ten Commandments. He was disappointed. He didn't get to go in the promised land. Remember, he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock and forfeited the opportunity to go to the promised land. But we're backing up now several years, or at least a few, sometime uh, to, the, to the day when they were still slaves in Egypt, when the people of Israel, uh, the Hebrew people were still slaves in Egypt. God is up to something. He's already messing with Pharaoh, but they're still enslaved, and God speaks with Moses. Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Do you hear the disappointment in his voice? Is this why you sent me? 
Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this. Ever since I, I, I started honoring you, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Do you hear the depth of his disappointment? Verse 1 of chapter 6, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go because of my mighty hand. He will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is the last verse. Now keep your Bibles open, though. I want you to look back at, with me in just a few minutes. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement, their broken spirits, and harsh labor. <clears throat> I want you to notice the things that God says to Moses. Number one, I am the Lord. He says that three times for emphasis. I'm God and you're not, and we're not taking applications. I'm just going to be, I'm going to be God. Sounds a lot like what God said to Job. Remember Job who suffered unspeakable pain? And Job never did curse God, but he got real close near the end of the story where he begins to ask questions that are, all, that are pushing the envelope, and God shows up in a storm, and, and he says, brace yourself, Job. And I picture Job, you know, when you're watching the Weather Channel, and they're bracing this, standing on the beach or in the middle of a street, and they're bracing themselves. That's how I picture Job. And God spoke, the Bible says, from the eye of the storm, and he said, brace yourself, Job. I'm going to ask the questions for a while. Number one, Job, where were you when I was creating the earth? Crickets. Number two, Job, have you ever refreshed the earth, the parched earth, with refreshing rains? Crickets. Third, Job, have you ever provided food for the birds? No answer. That's what I thought, God said. Now listen, God is not beating his chest. He's not playing king of the hill. He's not trying to show up. Job, he, he's, he, it's like a parent, like Kristen was talking about earlier, it's like a parent who understands things that children do not yet understand. So God says to Moses, one, I'm, I'm God and, and you're not. Two, he said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've been at this a while, Job. This is not my first rodeo. I've been here a while. That was generations past, centuries past. I've been here a while, Job. A few years ago, I went to Thailand to speak to missionaries, and uh, the day before the conference began, I went to uh, and did something called zip 
lining. It's called the Flight of the Gibbon. It's outside Chiang Mai, Thailand. And uh, I am, I need, you need to know that, and I've told you before, and I'm not exaggerating, I have acrophobia. I'm afraid of heights. I'm not only afraid, I get, I get um, queasy when, or uh, woozy or what do you call it, unbalanced when I get around, uh, when I get around heights. So I was, but I had to go. My, our daughter's father-in-law had done this flight to the Gibbon, the zip lining, and I couldn't let uh, him outdo me in the eyes of my daughter. And so I went to this place where the platforms, you know, they put these platforms up. They were 300 feet high over the rainforest of Thailand. Well, we got there to the office. We went through, got our gear, our harnesses, and then our guide came out, introduced himself to us. He began to talk about what we would do, and I noticed on his ID badge, that he wore this ID badge around his neck and, and this big placard, it was in big letters read, trainee. <laughs> I'm like, uh, no, this, this can't, he can't, they wouldn't let him do this if he were a trainee. And then I'm thinking, well, you know, they don't have OSHA here, and they don't have all the strict kind of safety rules. And, Man, I'm getting really nervous. Until after a while, he pointed to that and laughed, and he said, I'm not a trainee. He told us how many dozens of groups he'd taken, and I felt a little bit better. And one of these days, I'll tell you the story of how brave I was uh, on the um, zip line. But today, the point is, you don't want to trust your life to a trainee. And God says to Moses, Moses, I, I know you're disappoint disappointed with how I've not acted so far. But you need to remember, I was, I was with Abraham when all this whole story started. You, I, this is not my first rodeo. I'm not new to this. I, I'm the Lord. I'm not new. Three, I have heard my children. Verse 5 of chapter 6 I have heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving. For four centuries, they had been enslaved. For four centuries, they'd been crying. I can imagine a little Hebrew girl who cries herself to sleep one night on the little pallet of that slave quarters of a home they have. That day, she walked by and accidentally saw an Egyptian beating her daddy, and she prays God at night to this. She's heard from her parents about this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so she cries out to him, don't let that man hurt my daddy again, she cries and wonders. Is this God my parents speak of? Is he listening? I can imagine down the same street in another slave quarters of a home. A man sits on a rickety chair. Everybody else has gone to sleep, and, and he's, he's lamenting the fact that his family is like this. This is not what he wanted for his children. For supper, they had soup that was so watered down, it, it barely had a taste. And he, this man whose skin is toughened by the sun and whose muscles are hardened by labor, cries, and he wonders, is God listening? And so God shows up to Moses in a burning bush, and he says, I have heard my children crying. And he repeats it again to Moses as if Moses might have forgotten. Moses, I am not deaf to their cries. I hear my children when they cry. 
I'm God. I've been at this a while. I've heard my children crying. And then he says, and you can just let your eyes run through the text. He says, I will free you. I will redeem you. Turn this ugly thing into a new thing. I will embrace you. I will deliver deliver you to your new home and give you your land. This faith thing is hard. We would like to hear the voice of God, would we not? And and what we get instead are these, these... distant echoes, these faint whispers that we, we believe to be God speaking. We'd like to see God, but instead of seeing him, we, we get these hunches, these, this sense that maybe that's, maybe that's God at work, but we don't see him. We'd like answers to our most profound questions, but instead of answers, we get an invitation to trust, and that's what faith is, is it not? Doesn't it boil down, doesn't it boil down to trust? Carol Johnson had graduated from the University of Richmond. She graduated in uh, the spring of 1962, went to uh, teach at a public school in Richmond in the fall of 1962. At Christmas break, she traveled toward her home in her new home in Greenville, South Carolina. Her father, L.D. Johnson, had taught at the University of Richmond. Some members of our church in Richmond studied under him. But he had gone to be the pastor of First Baptist Church of Greenville. So on December the 21st, the day after her 23rd birthday, Carol Johnson got in her car and drove south. Meanwhile, her dad, L.D. Johnson, went to the office at the church building to put the final touches on his first Christmas sermon at First Baptist Church of Greenville. When his phone rang at the office, and it was the morgue in Oxford, North Carolina. Is this Dr. Johnson? Yes. Carol's car had hit an icy spot near Oxford, North Carolina, and she had died at the scene. That's a call I cannot imagine. Sixteen years later, he wrote about that in a book titled The Morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, After Death. And in the final chapter, or the final paragraph of the book, this is what he says. I've memorized it because it's so helpful to me. It's not long. He says, God can be trusted. In the last analysis, Christians have no more persuasive word. God can be trusted. That does not answer all the questions or remove all the mystery, but it is enough to build our lives upon. God can be trusted. Let me tell you that paragraph again. God can be trusted. In the last analysis, Christians have no more persuasive word. God can be trusted. That does not answer all the questions or remove all the mysteries. But it is enough to build our lives upon. God can be trusted. I, I have questions for which I have no answers. And there are lots of things I don't know. But I believe God can be trusted. How do I, how do I believe that? Because I, because I know Jesus. Now, I want you to hear this. If, if nothing else, in Hebrews chapter 2, there's this powerful phrase in verses 8 and 9. 
chapter 2 begins with this description of humans as God's creation uh, and, and having uh, authority over the rest of creation, and it, it is profound and complex in ways that I don't, I don't understand. But in verse 8, there's this powerful phrase that says, at present, we do not see everything. And verse 9 says, but we do see Jesus. But we do not see everything. We do not see everything at present. But we do see Jesus, the perfect embodiment of God. And so Dwight L. Moody was the uh, Billy Graham of his day in the 1800s. Uh, he was in a big revival in England, and he was invited to, uh, to go and visit a man who was an invalid, a man who by his disabilities was unable but to get out, bound to his home, bound to his bed. So Dwight L. Moody thought, um, when I get there, I'm going to meet a man who's despondent and down and discouraged. But in fact, he found a man who was full of life and full of joy. And after a, a really great visit, Dwight L. Moody asked the man, um, Sir, do, do you not ever get discouraged lying here, confined to your bed, confined to your home? Oh, yes, I do, the man said. And when I get discouraged, the old devil, he comes over to my bed and he whispers in my ear, does God love you letting you lie here like this? And when he does, the man said to Dwight L. Moody, I grab the old devil by the neck and I drag him over to the cross and I point up to the cross at Jesus dying, and I say, look there, devil. Now you tell me, does God love me? At present, we do not see everything, but we do see Jesus. And although sometimes our experience of God does not meet our expectations of God, he invites us to trust, and in the end, the last analysis, and what I leave you with is that God, who loves you with a love beyond your imagination, can be trusted.